Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf and online at sunburymotors.com. For Lincoln Kia, Hyundai, great new inventory, fabulous pre-owned inventory, all at Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf and online at sunburymotors.com. Time now for our play-by-play call of the day. Ben Simmons gets the Catrillo household excited. Beal in trouble. Simmons trying to tie him up. Beal, well, we thought he escaped. Now Simmons leads the parade. Green off the Simmons miss. Harris up for grabs, and Ben slamming for two of his count of 14 first-half points. Sixers put a 125 spot up last night, lead the series two games to none, heading down to D.C. You know, it's really cool when uh, somebody is considered to be a legend and they just happen to be an absolute down-to-earth guy. That's how I would describe Ray Dittinger. Ray, welcome. It is great to have you back with us on the show today. Always good to be with you, Steve. Thank you. All right. So let's get to finished business. This is really cool. Um... In all the years that you're in this business, I'll start with this. There's an assignment in my sports broadcasting class here at Penn State where they have to go out and cover an event. And I said, look, don't come back and just say, and in the third he got a base hit to knock in a run. And in the fifth they scored this way. I said, said you got to go the game within the game and find a story. And that's the assignment. you got to find a story within the game. When did you learn that lesson at a young age in this business? Oh, I learned it before I got in the business, Steve. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I learned it as a kid growing up in my grandfather's bar. Uh, it was, um, you know, people have often asked me, you know, who were your great writing influences? You know, how did you, how did you learn how to write? Who taught you how to craft a story? Um, and, you know, certainly the Sandy Grady's and the Larry Merchants and the Stan Hockmans had a big influence on me. Uh, but I think the biggest influence is my grandfather. Um, you know, he owned a bar in southwest Philadelphia, uh, and we lived in a little apartment a block away. And from the time I was eight, nine, ten years old, I pretty much lived in my grandfather's bar. I sat at the end of the bar drinking Cokes, watching TV, and listening to my grandfather tell stories. Uh, and he could tell a story better than anybody. Uh, in the book, I describe him as he was the garrison keeler of southwest Philadelphia. Uh, and, and, sit, and sitting at the end of the bar, just listening to him talk about the Phillies game of the previous night, or talking about 
Joe Walcott and Ezra Charles. I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, I just sat there and uh, he had the ability to to set a scene, describe the action, and just draw you in. That was uh, even as a kid, it was just it was just magical. And uh, I mean, he packed the bar every day, and people just came. They came for the beer and they came for the cold cuts, but they mostly came to hear my grandfather tell stories, and that was kind of where I learned. What did it mean in the World Series when you and your dad made eye contact after the Phillies won? Oh, that was – what a moment that was. Uh, it was the 80 World Series, and, uh, you know, it's it's game six, and it's the ninth inning, and they make the announcement in the press box, okay, uh, all members of the working press, you know, head downstairs to the interview room. And, and you know, I had done that run a million times because uh, nobody ever wants to wait till the end of the game. I mean, you don't want to get caught in the crowd. You don't want to be caught in the craziness. God forbid you should get caught in the press elevator, which we've all done at various <laughs> yeah. times. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, this night, I mean, everybody got up, they packed up their stuff, and they headed for the elevator, and they went downstairs. Uh, and I was the last guy left in the press box. And I said, you know what? I'm not going. Um, I've waited my whole life to see the Phillies win a World Series. Uh, and they're about to do it right now. Uh, and I don't want to be in some windowless room at the basement of the vet watching it on TV. I just won't. I just don't. I, I want to I be here in the press box with the windows open, and I want to see it, and I want to hear it, and I want to feel it, and I want to smell it. <laughs> I want to mm-hmm. just, just wrap myself in it, you know. And, and so I just stayed. I mean, the only guys left in the press box were Harry Callis, Rich Ashburn, me, and the PR guy, Larry Shank. <laughs> uh, and, and I just uh, – and part of it was <clears> – <throat> And part of it was I knew my grandfather, where his seats were. He was right below, he was literally right below me. Uh, he was right below the press box. Uh, so he, you know, he was right within sight. Uh, and when Tug McGraw throws that last pitch past Willie Wilson, and Willie Wilson swings and misses, uh, I looked down at him, and he looked up at me, and our eyes met, and uh, and he gave me this big smile and a big thumbs up. And uh you know, we had that connection at that moment, and for me, that was that was the World Series parade right there. I mean, that was it. And uh, so I was determined I wasn't going to be downstairs. I didn't want to miss out on that moment. And that's how I remember the '80 World Series. I had the same kind of connection with my grandfather when it came to sports, too. Yeah, you know, sure. he may not, he may not have had it. He may not have been you know at the bar, but I had the same connection with my grandfather. And it's interesting. I have the same connection today with my children. So now I, I fast forward to the Super Bowl. What did it mean when David was there and you could share that moment? That, you know, that was great, Steve. Um, and I, I honestly think that um, if that hadn't happened, uh, if the Eagles hadn't won that game uh, and David and I hadn't had that moment after the game, which was <laughs> televised live to, to yeah. God knows how many thousands of people, <laughs> if all that stuff hadn't happened um, – I, I will tell you honestly, the book never would have been written. Um, what really prompted me to write the book, what really prompted me to sit down and, and just kind of just put all this stuff together in form of a book, was that. It was it was that it was the it was the Eagles finally winning the Super Bowl uh, and having that very special moment with my son, uh, and uh, and the way people responded to it, the way people reacted to it, the way it was so much bigger than I ever imagined it could be. Um, I just finally decided, you know, I, I, I had a book publisher had wanted me to write kind of my memoirs before, and mm-hmm. I tried it. I had tried it like four four years earlier, 
And I, I just, you know, I wrote a couple chapters and I went, got back to them. And I said, you know what? No, I can't do it. It's just, I, it, I, I'm just not feeling it. Um, and I'm not going to write this if I don't really feel right about it. And he said, okay, fine. Just forget about it. Just put it away. And I did. Uh, but then after the Eagles won that Super Bowl, uh, and the, you know, David and I had that moment on camera, and people responded the way they responded. All of a sudden, I said, you know what? Yeah, I think I, I think I'm ready to do that book now. And uh, um, you know, if that hadn't happened, I don't think the book would have ever been written. But uh, the fact that it did, and the fact that it, it touched, it seemed to touch so many people. Uh, I just decided, you know what? I think this is a story worth telling, and I'm kind of glad I did. Once you actually started telling it. How quickly did it did you get into a flow of writing this? Yeah, uh, really fast. I mean, and for and for me, like really fast. Uh, and yeah. and anybody that knows me knows what a painstakingly slow writer I was. I mean, I had, uh, I mean, I was I was literally known around the world is probably stretching it, but certainly around the country, uh, I was known as the slowest sports writer in, in creation. Uh, it just took me forever to write a story. For, I mean, forever to write a story. Um, I mean, I was locked in every press box, every stadium, uh, every venue, every arena, um, in North America, for sure. Um, because they just assumed there couldn't possibly be anybody still working. And they would just lock the doors and turn out the lights, and, <laughs> and that was it. Uh, I mean, that happened to me everywhere. Um, so it was, it, was really, it was really a struggle to, for me to write. It never came easy for me. Did for a lot of other guys. I mean, I saw, you know, the great Bill Lyon could write real fast. Uh, Stan Hockman could write really fast. Um, there were some guys that just had that gift. I didn't. I mean, every time I sat down to write, it was a struggle. Uh, uh, but this one, this one came pretty easy. Uh, this one came, uh, once I started writing it, and once I kind of figured out what it was I wanted to say, uh, the actual writing part of it came fairly easily to me. Obviously, we've talked about the successes, but obviously in Philadelphia there's been some tough times. What does that do to the creativity of a writer trying to cover seasons like that? Um, no, it's a test, you know. Um, but I, I think that one of the uh, you, what you touch on is it's a, it's a good point, Steve. Um, you know, I think that the fact that I lived through all of that, you know, I lived through the 1964 Phillies collapse. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't in the business then. I was still a college student. Uh, but I lived through it, uh, and um, and you know I, you know I, I mean I cried. I mean I, I I almost flunked out of college because of it. I mean I was I was I mean the, the Phillies collapse in September of 1964, damn near wrecked my life, yeah. uh, and I wasn't alone. I mean the, all the people in the city. I mean I saw all those faces on the subway in the morning. <laughs> I mean I saw yeah. what people were going through. I lived through that. So that whole Philadelphia sensibility was was in me, and I had lived all that. So when I was lucky enough to get a job in newspapers in Philadelphia, and I never had to go anywhere else, and I was able to just stay here and write about the teams that I had grown up with and the city that I had grown up in, uh, I really thought it was a great advantage for me. Uh, you know, I mean, all the guys I've mentioned before, you know, Larry Merchant, Stan Hockman, Sandy Grady, Wicker, George Casita, all these guys, Tommy Cushman great columnists, all of them, but they all came from other places. 
you know, I mean, Tommy Cushman and Bill Lyon were from Illinois. You know, Larry Merchant, Stan Hockman, Bill Conlon, they were from New York. You know, Wicker and Grady were from North Carolina. I mean, it's great columnists, all of them. But they had to learn Philadelphia. You know, yeah. I had it in my bones. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I grew up with it. And so when that moment that you and I are talking about, that Tug McGraw throws that fastball past mm-hmm. Willie Wilson, strike three, all over, Phillies win the World Series. You know, I didn't have to try and project and say, I wonder what this means to Philadelphia. Right. You know, I wonder what this means to the people in the stands. I wonder what this means to the millions of people watching on TV that are running into the streets right now. What does this really mean to them? You know, if you didn't grow up in Philadelphia, that you know, you're, at, you're wondering that. I didn't have to wonder. You know, I was feeling what all of those people were feeling. And, and I think the, the, the idea that I kind of had that... Um, that sort of feeling and that kind of Philly sensibility. Uh, I still had the scars of 64. Uh, I think that was a real advantage of me when I sat down to write, because I think I was really writing with the eyes of a Philadelphia fan. Yeah, because um, I mean, I'm going into my 40th season of doing Penn State games. Sure. Look, I've seen, Ray, you know, I've seen some tough days. Sure. Okay? Oh, absolutely. What it, what it does, what it does, at least for my, and I'll see how you feel about it, that when something really good happens at least lends perspective it's not a gravy train moment you've got a perspective because you've seen what the struggle was like no question no question um so much of our life and so much of what how we relate to sports is is really about the context you know it's it's about it's about the moment it's about the achievement but a lot of it has to do with the context you know how does this fit into the overall mosaic of this town, of this fan base, of this franchise, um, you know, not, none of it, none of it exists in a vacuum. You know, uh, you know, Nick Foles comes in and wins a Super Bowl for the Eagles. Mm-hmm. You know, he's win. You know, it, it, there's he's he's carrying on the torch from Norm Van Brocklin. He's carrying yeah. on the torch yep. from Donovan McNabb. I mean, Tommy Thompson in the '40s. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, even if he doesn't know any of those guys or know their names, the fact of the matter is that, you know, he's trying to do what they tried to do. And for the fans, for the generations of fans that have watched all this, you know, they they see it that way. You know, that this is their franchise, and they've been rooting for this team, and they've been hoping that this team could deliver for them. Uh, and they're hoping that this guy can do what these other guys couldn't do. Uh, and uh, that's the context. And, you know, as you put it about all the things that you've seen at Penn State, you know, I've seen it all here in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, when I, when I said I don't know that I would have written this book if the Eagles hadn't won, I think that's true. But once they did win, I almost had to do it. <laughs> it, yeah. it, went, it, it went from it, I kind of like had to do it because um, I was coming up on it, – it, it really did mark 50 years of the business, which is a nice round number for sure. <laughs> but, it, but it also meant at that point – as a as a writer, as a journalist, working journalist in this city, you know, I had now seen the Flyers win two Stanley Cups. I had seen the Phillies win two World Series. I had seen Moses Malone and Dr. J win an NBA championship in Philadelphia. The one missing piece was the Eagles. It was the Eagles bringing the Lombardi Trophy home. And once that happened, and especially in the manner in which it happened, yeah. I kind of said, you know what, i got to write this. You know, I mean, this, this, this kind of brings the whole thing to conclusion. Um, and so that became the book, and that became the title. You know, the title of the book is Finished Business. And I really kind of felt like when the Eagles won that Super Bowl in Minneapolis, that was kind of, for me, finished business. They kind of completed the cycle. 
Finally, this one for you, Ray. For whatever reason, as a youngster, an athlete will make an impression on you. What was it about Tommy McDonald that made that impression on you? And then what did he do over the years to enhance his impression to you? My hero. My absolute hero. Um, I was just a little kid uh, when the Eagles drafted him in 1957. Um, and I was, a, you know, I was, you know, I was a football savant from the time I was like six years old, my grandfather's bar. Um, <laughs> and I followed pro football and I followed college football. And at that time, there was no better football team than Oklahoma. Uh, they went on, they 41 games in a row they won. And their star was this little itty-bitty guy named Tommy McDonald. Uh, and I was, just, I was just fascinated. I was fascinated by the college team that never lost. I was fascinated by this little guy that week after week did these amazing things. Uh, and then, lo and behold, in 1957, who drafts him but the Philadelphia Eagles? He's going to be coming to my hometown. Uh, and as in the book, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the fact that our family used to go to Eagles training camp, which was then in Hershey, uh, every summer. And we would go up there for two weeks, and we would watch every practice. Uh, and, and now I knew that Tommy McDonald was coming to Hershey. Uh, and so I started standing outside the locker room waiting for him to come out every day. Uh, and uh, I swear to God, I was like eight years old, and he didn't seem like he was much bigger than I was. <laughs> or, and, he, and he almost looked as young. I mean, he had, uh, he had this short crop blonde hair, and he had this baby face. Uh, and I would wait for him every day outside the locker room. And he would come out, and he would see me, and he started calling me little brother. And he would say, here, can I carry my helmet? And I would take his helmet, and I would walk with him to the practice field. And this became a ritual that went on for his whole time with the Eagles. Uh, and we developed this really this really lovely relationship where he was just so kind to me uh, and he made me feel so important. And when he called me little brother, it felt real to me. Mm. Uh, so I had that experience. And then, of course, once the season started on Sunday, I'd go out to see him at Franklin Field and he was such a great player. I mean, he was, he was, just, he was just great. I mean, he wasn't just great, but he was thrilling and he was exciting. And he, he played with such exuberance and such joy that it was just, yeah, everybody loved him. I mean, he was, he was the most popular guy on the team and the kids loved him, but everybody loved him. Um, but in my mind, in my heart, he was mine. <laughs> and he was yeah. in my mind. He was my guy. Uh, and in our section, in the stand section, double E, whenever Tommy would make a big catch or score a touchdown, everybody would start pointing at me and saying, "Your boy, your boy, your boy." Uh, and so then later on, when he retired and I became a sports writer and I got to know him a little bit on another level, um, you know, I, I knew that the one thing in his life that he was kind of missing was the Hall of Fame. And he certainly belonged in there, but it looked like it was never going to happen. Uh, so I began sort of a campaign to get him what he deserved, which was a place in Canton, Ohio. And uh, I, I tried and I tried and I tried. It took about 12 years, but finally in 1998 uh, he got in, uh, and he asked me to be his presenter. <laughs> and so, um, you know, this, this whole story plays out in the book. But, uh, you know, there I am, uh, August 1st, 1998, riding in an open convertible through the streets of Canton, quarter of a million people on the sidewalk, and I'm sitting there in this open convertible, sitting next to my boyhood hero, and we're on our way to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I'm going to present him for induction. Uh, and Steve, if that's not the definition of dreams coming true, I don't know what is. That is such a cool story. The book is entitled Finished Business, and with a lot of summer coming up here... It's going to be a perfect, great read before the next Eagles training camp. 
race. <laughs> and, a, and a wonderful Father's Day gift, I might add. Uh, and that, that, see, that leads you into summer. And then exactly right. the training camp. Perfect. So if you could do that, that'd be great because it'd be well worth your time. I can't wait myself. Ray, thank you so much for your valuable time. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Steve. Anytime. Take care now. The legendary Ray Dittinger. Yeah, he's just one of the really, really good guys out there. Wow. Yeah. Um, we like to balance the show as often as we can. We get a really great guy like that on there. Uh, so in the interest of balance, we'll just use two words, the suit, and move on. All right, so we'll come back with more in a moment. What? It's I'm just trying to balance the show. You know, 51-year-old Tim Tebow and Luke Catrillo yelling at him. I have concerns. Can Lisa be enough of an influence? You won't answer because now it's like you're the dri- you're the driving force. Eh, she probably will, eventually. <laughs> she needs to be. All right, Ray is. The book is entitled "Finished Business: My Fifty Years of Headlines, Heroes, and Heartaches." You don't have to be a Philadelphia fan to love this book. Right? But being a Philadelphia fan really does help you love the book, okay? All right? It's just really, really well written. And this guy's, look, he's covered the Olympics, major sports. He's interviewed Hank Aaron, Dr. J, Jack Nicholas, Muhammad Ali. But see, what I like are the personal touches with it. His grandfather, his son, the Tommy McDonald stories, the personal stuff. It's really cool. All right, back with more in a moment. Another half hour to go on the show today. And uh, don't forget, tomorrow we'll have the king heading into the weekend. A holiday weekend. We won't be on Monday. This would be a good time for you to take your son to his first sporting event. I'm hoping to do that at some point. All right. Then, then all of a sudden, the mommy... I never heard Daddy use those words before. All right, back with more in a moment. <laughs> that may or may not have already happened. Here on News Radio 1070. Okay, okay. When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Merth family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle's worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC Way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC Way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC Way? The SMC Way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15, Humble's Wharf. Online at sunburymotors.com. 
Ford, Lincoln, Kia, Hyundai. Fabulous new inventory, the best. Great pre-owned inventory with the Sunbury Motors guarantee. It's all Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia Routes 11 and 15, Hummels Wharf, and online at sunburymotors.com. So here we are coming out of COVID. Here we are coming out of lockdowns. And it has been an interesting week when it comes to fans being back at events. Number one, it sounds phenomenal. Number two, it looks phenomenal. And number three, there are some people who came out of lockdown and didn't come out sane. I mean, you look at the... I mean, let's start with Phil Mickelson and Brooks Kepka trying to work their way up the 18th fairway and having to fight their way through the crowd to get it. Now, with Mickelson, he's, he's, he's going to be the champion. He's going to win it, the whole deal. You know, meanwhile, Kepka, most people didn't even know it was him. You know, and he's trying to fight his way through to get there so because he has to finish the tournament. Then there's the Knicks game last night, okay? Fan spits on Trey Young. But then they had to shut down 7th Avenue last night because the Knicks fans all poured out into the street and just stood in the street and they shut it down. Now, I realize they haven't won a playoff game in forever. I understand that part of it. But but they they had to shut down 7th Avenue last night instead of walking on the sidewalk because they're all walking in the street. There's the situation at the at the Sixers game with the popcorn on Russell Westbrook. Um, so look, this is early on, so we don't know how far this is going to go or how strange it's going to get. But so far, there's been a little more fan chaos than I thought there would be. Now, one crazy ruins it for everybody. Uh, that always happens, but yeah, there's been a hasn't been totally sane out there to this point. And of course, some of the people are your people, so. Yeah. They looked at one of the videos. It looked like Luke. Yes. Out there in the street, you know, chanting for the Knicks. Although he'd never do that. <laughs> I was gonna say I could I could assure you that will never happen. You'll ground him, won't you? Mm, close you to it, gr- yeah. You would ground him for life. <laughs> no, he'll be grounded for life if he roots for the Cowboys. Wow. For the Knicks, he'll wow. be more of a slap on the wrist because the Knicks are just pathetic. So. Wow. How about that? He roots for the Cowboys out of the will. Holy <laughs> mackerel. That's big time. You got to teach him early. You got to teach him early, he says. Huh? Do you have these conversations with your wife at home? Does she dispute any of this? Or? All the time. <laughs> I'm outnumbered when it comes to this. Ah. Milwaukee and Miami tonight. Bucks up two games to none. Phoenix, L.A. tonight. Staples, series tied at one. 
Denver at Portland tonight. Series tied at one. Montreal, Toronto tonight. In Toronto, Leafs up three games to one. Nashville hosting Carolina with the Canes up three games to two. The fan that poured popcorn on Russell Westbrook has attended his last Sixers game, at least at home. Same story for the Knicks fan that was found spitting on Trey Young. Banned for life from Madison Square Garden. The Eagles promoted Catherine Raichi to the VP level, the first ever woman to do that. Montreal native, spent five years in the CFL, mostly as the director of football operations for the Toronto Argonauts. No comment from you at all. That's a good move. Try to put an eagle story out there. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, Tiger Woods actually talked today for the first time. He says this rehab has been an entirely different animal. Um, he says, I understand more of the rehab process because of my past injuries, but this was more painful than anything I've ever experienced. He did decline questions about whether he would play again. Uh, Golf has become a secondary concern for him. Severe right leg injuries in the crash, which was deemed by the L.A. County Sheriff's Department to be speeding when he crossed over onto the wrong side of the road and eventually struck a tree at a speed in excess of 70 miles per hour. We've talked about the fractures to the tibia, the fibula. Uh, Very little information since. Uh, I mean, he's on crutches. He's got the leg wrapped. He's got braces on it. Said my... Physical therapy has been keeping me busy, Tiger Woods said. I do my routine every day, and I'm focused on my number one goal right now, which is walking on my own, taking it one step at a time. Now, of course, he's had to go through this with five knee surgeries, additional back surgeries. Now, a lot of people have reached out to him. Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, they've gone to see him. Ricky Fowler went to see him at his home as well. And Wood said, look, that's been incredible. I've had so much support from people both inside and outside of golf, which means so much to me and has helped me tremendously. Boy, it must be hard coming back from that. Wow. Very difficult. Well, did you see the Javi Baez play today in the Pirates game? I didn't. Uh, well, we're, it's it's something that tonight when they get to Sports Center, you're going to have to watch it. It's not one of those that makes the hometown team look good. Uh, if 
Matt were a Pirates fan, he would have everybody fired. Grounded to third, throw over. Now Bias is between first and the plate. And he keeps running back to the plate. Then the guy's safe at the plate, and there's nobody covering first, and Baez beats everybody to first base. <laughs> and then goes on his way to second. And they throw the ball past second. But he went down the first baseline. Okay? Ball's fielded by the first baseman, or by the third baseman. The throw's offline, so the first baseman, I think it's Will Craig, is not on the back. Right? So... Baez keeps going back to home plate. And Will Craig fouls him, fouls him. Meanwhile, there's a runner on third. The runner on third finally takes off. So they throw the plate. The guy beats it, right? Because Craig lobs it in, beats it, slides under the tag, safe. And Baez turns around and runs to first. Then they throw the ball away and he gets a second. Welcome to another year of Pirates baseball. That's absurd. That is absurd. It's, yeah. It's your Pennsylvania teams. At least you beat the Marlins last night. That's right. You're a Yankee fan. I forgot you. I can care less about the Pennsylvania baseball teams. You're a a front runner. How many World Series wins you got this century? Oh, that's right, one. That's what I forgot. Yeah. It's not a high number, you know, considering the money you spent. You are such a typical Red Sox hater. I'm just, I'm, all I'm saying is that you spend a lot of cash and there isn't a lot of return. It's like buying stock and the stock goes nowhere. When's the first series between our two teams? It's got to be coming matter. up soon. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What the heck, you know? You're not going to win this year either. <laughs> not good enough. Didn't spend it on the right guys. Do you ever develop any players? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> For a team that has Aaron Judge, yeah, we develop players. <laughs> yeah, we develop. Our I saw them about uh, 90 miles northeast of here. <laughs> Some of them, at least. Yeah, up in Scranton. Scranton's 90 miles? Really? Give or take. Well, I know I had to, I drove from there down to... Sunbury for a golf tournament. It was Purdy, in fact. I had to, I had to speak up in Scranton, up in Dunmore, on a Tuesday night, and the golf tournament was on a Wednesday. So I, I did it. So I've driven it. Huh? I don't recall. I mean, it was longer than I thought it was going to be, but it's longer than I thought it was going to be. 87 to be exact. 87 miles. Wow. Easy drive, though. Oh, it is an easy drive. There's no no problem with the drive. ESPN is going to have 100 college football games in three weeks. 
So here we are, less than 100 days until the start of the season. We talked today about Penn State, Wisconsin on Fox, noon, Camp Randall. Ball State, home opener, Beaver Stadium, 3.30. The homecoming game with Illinois is at noon. And Fox and Fox Sports 1 are going to do the Iowa game. They just don't have a time yet. But in three weeks, ESPN is going to have 100 games. Needless to say, they are ecstatic that we are headed toward a sense of normalcy. They've got Washington, Michigan. They got Pitt, Tennessee. They've got Iowa, Iowa State, Texas, Arkansas, Utah, BYU, Florida State, Notre Dame, Louisville, Ole Miss, Michigan State, Northwestern, Virginia Tech, uh, North Carolina, Boise State, UCF, Hawaii takes on UCLA, Georgia, Clemson, Alabama, Miami. You got some opening week games pretty good. Can't wait for that. It'll be fun to have it back. Instead of the, I mean, last year was just, it's like having water dripping your forehead, waiting to see if you're going to play or not, and then you find out you're not going to play, then you find out you are going to play. It's like water on the forehead. Incredible. Of course, we'll have a full slate of Shikalemi football. We're contractually obligated to mention that. I'd mention it because Dave Ritchie does a brilliant job on it. You, sir, are my hero! the heck does he work with? Back with more in a moment here on News Radio 1070 WKOK. S-U-I-T, that spells suit-da! Major League Baseball, Mike Trout's out, Choi Otani's been out, Anthony Rendon has been out, Mookie Betts, Cody Bellinger, Cody Seeger, they've all been out a period of time, Brandon Crawford, Byron Buxton, George Springer, Giancarlo Stanton, Luis Robert, I mean, Christian Yelich hasn't hit a home run. Uh, it is... a very concerning injury trend in Major League Baseball. So I don't know. Some say part of it is what they're doing with launch angle. They say part of it is because they say the launch angle hitting camp teachers want you to put the ball in the air at a 17% launch angle. Ted Williams, they say his launch angle, Williams estimated that his launch angle was 5 to 9%. It's interesting. You know what Williams used to do as a hitter before games? He'd play pepper. Major League players today before the game are not allowed to play pepper. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yep. 
Interesting. There are 34 players that make over 10, 10 million. Six of the 34 players are below the Mendoza line in hitting. How about that? The reason Ted Williams played Pepper is it gave him better back control and a feel for the swing. Usually, usually liked to play Pepper at least 20 minutes a day. In 1959, when Jim Cott was walking down the left field line in Fenway to go to the visiting clubhouse before his first start at the park, he watched Williams playing Pepper with owner Tom Yockey. Said, I wish players would practice their pepper swings and use them 0102, says one former club president. They don't play it anymore. In fact, you watch batting practice. You know what they don't do in batting practice? Like, usually, when we took batting practice, you know, now obviously I was as far from a professional as you could possibly be. Right? But we always had to bunt first. Same here. Playing in high school. Always had to bunt first just to get the bat on the ball, just so you could see. The reason you did it was not just so you could be a great bunter. It was that you could, boom, that you could see the ball. When you bunt, you're looking at the ball. Boom. And you, you know, right? And then can you control it? Can you put it down the first baseline? Can you turn and go down the third baseline? Right? You know, it, it gets the contact in there. Yep. That's exactly then, what I had to do. These guys don't do that anymore. One veteran pitcher says today guys go up there trying to bridge an 0-2 pitch and then complain that because they're getting breaking balls. Showcase hitters usually have a lot of problems making adjustments as well as hitting fastballs up in the zone. Alex Cora has told one player who struck out in exactly that situation that he'll have to make adjustments because in the game today, not getting the run in is unacceptable. But again, private instructors teach exit velocity. Remember that. Now, I want you to remember this for little Luke. They say that year-round baseball-only sports activities is dangerous and athletically regressive. I want you to remember that for Luke. What a well-rounded young lad.